This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Alistair Moffat, and I'm delighted to see so many of you here. Um, let me explain what we're going to do uh, in the next hour. Uh, our guest is, is going to come on and talk about the contents of this book, some passionately held beliefs, a great deal about Scotland's history, a great deal perhaps about Scotland's future. And once he's talked for 15 minutes or so, I'm then going to come and ask him a few questions. And then after that, what I want to do is open it out to you, the audience. If you have a question, please put your hand up, but wait for the mic. Otherwise, it will be only the person near you who will hear what your question is. Anyway, I think that's quite enough. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Gordon Brown. Thanks very much. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can I... Can I say, first of all, it's a real pleasure, having been at the first Edinburgh Book Festival many years ago, to be at the 31st, to see such a wonderful audience here in Edinburgh today, to be chaired by Alistair Muffet, who is the author of a book that I should advertise for him, Bannockburn, which is just out, and a great book, and to speak about the future of Scotland. And my theme today is the subtitle of my book, A Future Worth Sharing about interdependence, about cooperation, about the integrated world we live in and how Scotland fits into that. And I'm reminded that uh, this theme, interdependence, cooperation, was a theme chosen uh, nearly 60 years ago uh, by someone uh, far better a writer than I was and far better a figure than I was, Albert Einstein. And he used to publish a book uh, almost every year after he retired from his work in physics about the future of the world, about the interdependent world. And he used to go around Britain and he used to give speeches every night. And he would go to one hall, give a speech, speak for 15 minutes, go to the next hall, speak for 15 minutes, then travel by car with a chauffeur that he'd hired for the time and go to the next hall. So he'd do about four or five meetings a night. The only problem, of course, is he gave exactly the same speech wherever he went. And one night, having done this for, for weeks, his chauffeur said to him, Mr. Einstein, because he was an old man, he said, you look very tired, Mr. Mr. Einstein. I now know your speech off by heart. <laughs> Why don't you sit in the front row of the audience, as I normally do, and I will give the speech, uh, and nobody will be any the wiser. <laughs> and so that night, Einstein, who was tired, agreed with his chauffeur that the chauffeur would sit there, Dave was the chauffeur, would sit there, uh, uh, Einstein would sit there, and, and Dave, the chauffeur, would be up on the stage. And everything went absolutely smoothly because the speech was so well known by the chauffeur, he knew it off by heart that he gave it with such a, a panache that it got a great reception from the audience. And he was about to leave the stage, about to get into the car to do the next meeting when suddenly the chairman for the night said, are there any questions? <laughs> so the chauffeur was on the stage and the first question, of course, one that Einstein, of course, was very concerned about. What is the relationship between quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity. <laughs> and the chauffeur was frozen, not knowing what to say. And then suddenly he hit on a strategy. He said, ladies and gentlemen, he said, this question is so simple and so straightforward, I'm going to ask my chauffeur <laughs> to come back from the audience and ask it. Now, a few uh, months ago, on this very theme interdependence, I was at Harvard University in Boston. And I was asked by people there who were recording a new version of the inauguration address that John F. Kennedy had given in 1961 in America. And they were calling on people from all over the world to read paragraphs so that they would make up a new recording of this famous inaugural address. And some of you may remember from the history books and some of you may know from what you've uh, read about this great address that was given by John F. Kennedy in 1961. You know, he started the torch as passed to a new generation, a sign of a new youthful generation of people taking over the world. Never negotiate from fear, never fear to negotiate. It was about diplomacy and how it should be practiced, the right way of practicing diplomacy in the modern world. Ask not what your community can do for you, ask what you, you can do for your country. Again, a great statement of public service. He defeated Richard Nixon for the presidency of the United States in 1960 
And Richard Nixon was asked, what of the great lines in this famous Kennedy inaugural address would you love to have delivered yourself? And he said there was only one line he'd like to have given. I hereby solemnly accept the office of President <laughs> of the United States of America. But Kennedy went on, and this was what I had to read. Ask not what America can do for you. Ask what we together can do for the future of mankind. And Kennedy went on to deliver an address in Philadelphia just after that. And he said in 1776, America, he said, had a declaration of independence. Now, he said, it is time for us to have a declaration of interdependence. And I want to suggest to you that there are no four nations in the world, Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, that are more interdependent upon each other, that are more integrated by history, more connected by economics as well as by geography, more linked to each other by common standards that we apply. And we must think twice before we throw what we have built up over 300 years away. Because while other countries have found it difficult to work together, and while other continents cannot give you examples of countries where four distinctive nations work together in the same way that we do in the United Kingdom, we have moved from the 18th century where we had a customs union and a common market to a situation where we had in the 19th century a single economic market. 70% remember of Scotland's exports go to England and to Wales to the 20th century when we built something completely new and you might call it a social market where there are equal rights of citizenship no matter what your nationality a right to health care, a right to unemployment benefit, a right to help when you're a pensioner, a right to help when you're disabled, a right to help for your area, your community when you're unemployed. And these are economic and social rights of citizenship that are shared across the whole of the United Kingdom, irrespective of what nationality you are, whether you're Scots, English, Welsh or Northern Irish. And this, I want to suggest to you, is something that is quite unique it is unparalleled in the modern world. It is a recognition of the interdependence of peoples and of nations and is almost certainly the shape of things to come for the future of our world. I'll give you another story. In 1959, again Richard Nixon was the Vice President of the United States of America and he was asked to go to Ghana for the independence celebrations in Ghana. And Nixon, as you may understand, was... Uh, was quite clumsy in the way he approached things, not quite sure what to say. So he arrived at these independent celebrations in Ghana and he saw this audience and didn't know quite what to do. So he jumped into the audience and said to the first person, how does it feel to be free? <laughs> then he came to the second person, how does it feel to be free? And then he came to the third person and said, how does it feel to be free? And they said, how should I know? I come from Alabama. <laughs> and there you were. There you were in the late 1950s. Civil and political rights were finally being achieved in Ghana. But not even in America did people share the same economic and social rights. Not even in a federal state which claimed to be one nation did people have the same rights in Alabama that they had in Virginia or had in New Hampshire or had in Massachusetts. And yet over the course of the 20th century, first in helping people who were elderly then in helping people who were unemployed, then in helping people who were on low pay, then in helping people who were sick with a national health service, we created in Britain something quite unique and unparalleled, which has played the biggest part that you can imagine in narrowing the differences in income between the Scots and the English, and that is the creation of social and economic rights for everyone irrespective of nationality. And you know what the truth of this is? It was mainly Scots who pushed for this. It was Scots who demanded in the 1920s an end to the Scottish Poor Law and said instead we need a British welfare state. It was Tom Johnson who was a Scottish Secretary here in Edinburgh in the 1940s who told Winston Churchill he would not accept a separate Scottish health service which was funded within Scotland. It had to be funded by the whole of the United Kingdom and free of charge and he paved the way for the eventual creation of the National Health Service. 
And, of course, when we were in government in 1997, we could have had a Scottish minimum wage. We could have had an English, Welsh, northeast, northwest of England minimum wage. We decided the only fair way was to have a United Kingdom minimum wage, to have tax credits on top of that, so there were equal rights for every citizen of the United Kingdom. And I want to suggest to you these were Scottish ideas. It was not a colonial imposition on Scotland. It was not some imperialism by England telling us we had to have this form of welfare, healthcare, and this form of economic and social union. We Scots advocated it ourselves because we thought it was in the best interest of Scotland. And it's difficult to say, looking at the 20th century, that the Scots pioneers who advocated these changes and these rights were wrong. It seems to me that they made the right decision. And just think of it this way. In the 18th century, in the Scottish Enlightenment, Scots decided that they wanted to look at how you could not only be a citizen of your own country, but with Adam Smith and David Hume and Ferguson and Robertson, how you could be a citizen of the world. By the 20th century, we decided how can we civilise industrial society? And we decided, working with people in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, of course, but we decided that we could build a system where you pooled and shared resources across the whole of the United Kingdom. And now in the 21st century, we've got a new challenge. Because the issue is how you respond to global economic and social change. The economies of our world are so integrated now that perhaps only 25% of the output of Scottish manufacturing firms is produced by Scottish-owned businesses. Perhaps only about 40% of the Scottish economy as a whole of private businesses, 40% of that output alone is produced by Scottish firms. We rely on firms investing from all over the world in Scotland and elsewhere. And the amount of trade that is done across the world is growing from 5% 20 years ago to 25% to 30 to 40 to 50%, and we are becoming an ever more connected and integrated world. And I would suggest to you the challenge of the 21st century is how nations retain a distinctive identity, culture, traditions, and their own institutions, while at the same time cooperating, sharing, being part of an integrated interdependent economy. And I want to suggest, and you can ask me about this in questions, and ask whether it makes sense to abandon the connections we have at the moment with the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, in saying all this, I yield to no one in my patriotic pride in being Scottish. I yield to no one in my sense of pride when I see Scotland excel, as we did in the Commonwealth Games, but excel in all sorts of areas, including arts, culture, education, and in the inventiveness for which we've been known across the centuries. In fact, my first memory of going to London was at the age of 11. And I went in what I considered then to be a time of national humiliation when my Scottish pride had been dented and attacked because of what happened on the football field. Some of you may remember, but most of you won't, 1961, Scotland versus England at football. And I was listening to it as a 10-year-old on the radio. England scored a first goal in seven minutes. They won the game by nine goals to three, and this was football, not rugby. <laughs> there were Scottish players on the field that day who claimed not to have played in the match. There was even a guy, Dave Mackay, who scored a goal who always denied he was anywhere near Wembley on that day. The goalkeeper was Frank Haffey, who played for Celtic at the time. And after the humiliation of losing nine goals, it became so difficult for him to stay in Scotland that he went as far as he could get away, and he emigrated to Australia. <laughs> and 30 years later, the 1990s, Dennis Law, the famous footballer, met him in Australia. And the first question from Frank Haffey was, is it safe to come back? <laughs> and the answer was no. So I yield, <laughs> I yield to no one in my pride and my loyalty to Scotland, to our institution, to our history, to our culture. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is so powerful and has survived the Act of Union in the last 300 years that think of the, the monarchy and how the Hanoverian monarchy has always tried to identify with being Scottish. Some of me, you may know from the history books that Queen Victoria was so keen for people to think of her as identified with Scotland and not just with England or the rest of the United Kingdom that she claimed, she went to Bannockburn and she claimed there that she was a direct descendant not only of Edward the Conqueror 
but also of Robert the Bruce. <laughs> she then said that she was a direct descendant of Elizabeth I, which was difficult because she was childless, <laughs> and a direct descendant of Mary, Queen of Scots. And she wrote on the tomb of James II in Scotland, this tomb installed or inaugurated by Victoria, your direct descendant. So the monarchy, people understand the strength of Scottish feeling, the strength that we have as Scots, the traditions, the culture, the strong sense of history, and of course the, the relationship we have had with, with the English over the years, sometimes quite abrasive. I mean, uh, this Scot going down to London and saying uh, to an Englishman, you must think of us Scots as very aggressive. And the reply was, we don't think of you at all. <laughs> and there's always been that tension. But you know this, my patriotic vision of Scotland's future is a strong Scottish identity, strong Scottish institutions which we've had over centuries from the church to the law to education, a strong Scottish parliament and one that has strengthened powers. And I've said, uh, I, and uh, I, I repeat this, that we have destroyed the old ideas over these last few years that Britain is a unitary state, that Britain has what's called parliamentary or Westminster sovereignty that is focused purely on one parliament. And now we are part of a, a partnership, which I believe is a partnership of equals, but equally at the same time, sovereignty in this country is shared. So my patriotic vision is very clear. Strong Scottish identity, strong Scottish institutions, strong Scottish parliament, but we share and pool our resources where it is right to do so as part of the United Kingdom for pensions, for the future of the funding of, of healthcare, for jobs, a million jobs in Scotland are linked to our membership of the United Kingdom, and of course for defence and security. And up against that, I would suggest that the nationalist vision, because we're not going to be voting on whether Scotland is a nation, Scotland is a nation, we're not voting on whether Scotland has a parliament, we do have a parliament, the nationalist vision is to break the links with the rest of the United Kingdom. And I would suggest to you, in this era of interdependence, even Mr Salmon now recognises that that is not a viable long-term proposition that he can even suggest will work. He wants now to be part of the UK currency, but he doesn't accept the logic of the position that if you're part of the UK currency and want to draw benefits from it and help make the decisions in it, you've got to be part of the UK Parliament for that to happen. And I would suggest to you that what he's trying to suggest is that Scotland could make its decisions on the currency as part of the United Kingdom, but we would have no say over these decisions. We would have no say over the Parliament, because we wouldn't have members in the UK Parliament which decides the constitution of the Bank of England. We'd have no say over the Treasury, because there'd be no Scottish representation in Westminster or in the government. And we'd have no say over the Monetary Policy Committee, because it would be charged to operate for the interests of England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and not Scotland. And therefore, on the vital issues affecting our lives, interest rates, money supply, inflation, what happens to our living standards, employment, banking rescues, when it came to it, we would have no formal input on the decisions that are being made. We'd have to accept them being made elsewhere, and we would be creating, by our own decision, the SNP, a neo-colonial relationship between us and the rest of the United Kingdom where we would have to accept the decisions that were made. It is a worse outcome than now and it is the worst possible outcome for Scotland. Now, my theme is we're in an interdependent world, and let me just finish before questions by emphasising what I mean. One of the great joys I had was in meeting uh, Nelson Mandela. His, his, he had the same birthday as my uh, younger son, and his wife had the same birthday, funnily enough, as my older son, and we used to exchange uh, phone calls as well as letters and cards on the days of these birthdays, and I talked to Gresham Michelle, his widow, only a few days ago on, on her birthday and my son's birthday. And Nelson Mandela, as you know, came to London many times after his retirement. And I was lucky enough to be able to host the, the dinner that was raising funds for the Nelson Mandela Hospital and the foundation that he had uh, created. And he gave, uh, as a donation, a letter he'd written to a child and suggested that that be auctioned. Uh, and the auction took place with the last two people in the auction being Elton John and Oprah Winfrey. And they were bidding against each other. 900,000, 950,000. Then Elton John offered 975. Then Oprah went to a million and Elton John pulled out. And then she was told she was paying in pounds and not dollars. <laughs> and then we went to a concert 
And I was sitting next to Nelson Mandela, having to explain who worse to do it than me, all the pop groups that were playing in the honour of Nelson Mandela. And he took a particular interest in now the late, unfortunately, Amy Winehouse. And we went down from the stage and we met the, uh, the different stars that were playing. And Amy Winehouse came up to him and said, Mr Mandela, she said, you and my husband have a great deal in common. And Nelson Mandela said, I'm, I'm not sure what, what you mean. He said, yes, she said, both of you have spent a long time in prison. <laughs> now, on that night, Nelson Mandela told this uh, great story to me. The night before he left prison in South Africa, he called together the members of the African National Congress. And he said to them, look, you've been in prison, many of you, for many years. Some of our friends have been executed. Some have been tortured. You've got a right, yes, morally, you've got a right to take revenge and to have recriminations and to retaliate. But if you do that, South Africa will be a bloodbath. We will never be able to build a multiracial society in this country. We will forever be haunted by the retaliation that takes place. And Mandela persuaded even the most hardened extremist in the African National Congress, people who definitely had a justification for the grievances against the authorities, that they must try in South Africa to do what he thought was the only way to build the future, to build a multiracial society where people across the racial and ethnic and, in some cases, religious uh, divide could learn to work together. And I suggest to you that the biggest challenge and the biggest idea of the 21st century is not independence, attractive as it may be to some, not going off on your own. The biggest idea is how to make the most of our interdependence and how to learn the lessons of our history that it is possible for nations with different cultures and traditions to work together in an interdependent way. And for what reason? A final story. Ronald Reagan. Olaf Palme, Prime Minister of Sweden desperate to meet Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Keeps getting his people to phone the White House and demand for a meeting. And eventually, as he was about to leave office, Reagan agreed to meet this man who was a champion of international development, a man who wanted to build the bridges between the rich and poor, tragically assassinated in Sweden, as many of you may know, but a famous figure on international development. And just as he's about to come into the White House to meet Ronald Reagan, Reagan turns to his officials and he says, isn't this man a communist? And his official said, no, Mr. President, he's an anti-communist. And Reagan says, I don't care what kind of communist he is. <laughs> and Reagan, and Reagan, Reagan asked this man, he asked this man, he said, what is it that you want? What do you actually want? And he said, I want every single child and young person to have the chance to realize the potential, to bridge the gap between what they are and what they have it in themselves to become. And I suggest this is the bigger challenge of anybody who's involved in public life and public decision-making. We want to make sure that everyone has the best chance possible to realise the potential. And I would suggest to you that we should look carefully at the patriotic vision of the future of Scotland, a positive vision, a forward-looking future. Think big, think positively, think that we're making a decision not just for ourselves but for a generation. But, of course, at the end... It's for you to make up your mind. Thank you very much. Let me ask you about that decision, Gordon, and the mechanics of it and the consequences to begin with. In 1979, when there was a, a, a referendum for devolution, uh, those against it uh, promised that there would be change afterwards. Scotland would get more powers and so on, and it didn't happen. Now, this time, the major parties at Westminster have said, yes, there will be change. Why should people trust that this time? Because the British Constitution has to reform. It's broken. It needs to change. We're going to be as close, in my view, within a year or two to a federal state as you could be in a country where one part of it, one nation, is 85% of the pop population. You see, as I was explaining, for centuries we held to this idea that Britain was a unitary state. So, based on Westminster sovereignty, based on Parliament uh, being able to do what it wanted. None of that works anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense of the British Constitution. We have parliaments and assemblies in different parts of the country. 
We have the courts challenging Westminster when it does things that are not in line with what people see as the, the natural way of uh, running a constitution. And there is now an all-party agreement that they will bring in big changes after, after the referendum. I personally think uh, whatever you think of politicians, I mean, it's very difficult for politicians coming to speak at book festivals, as you know, <laughs> of one of my colleagues who came previously, it was said, uh, they quoted the words of Shelley, he'd lost the art of communication, but not, alas, the gift of speech. And <laughs> that, 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 that's maybe what you feel about this. But I believe there is no alternative uh, but to introduce these uh, changes. That would mean the taxation powers for the parliament, it would mean there could never be anything like a poll tax again or a bedroom tax or rail privatisation imposed on Scotland against its will. I believe that the powers of the Scottish Parliament fit in with my view that you share sovereignty now across the United Kingdom. There is no such thing as exclusive sovereignty going to one institution anymore. We have got to share sovereignty in the future. And I think the answer uh, after September the 18th is not no change. The answer is the kind of change that I'm proposing based on the patriotic vision I'm putting forward. Okay. Now, I mean, we live, sadly, in a country that has no written constitution, unlike the USA. No. Um, but it seems to me that whatever happens on the 18th of September, as you say, there will be change. We've talked a lot about Scotland. I'd like to talk for a moment about the rest of the United Kingdom and the impact of the result in either direction. What do you think that impact Well, you will see, be? one of the interesting things is that the desire for change is not just in Scotland, it's in Wales, it's in the north of England, it's in the northwest of England. In fact, there is, uh, you know, as I uh, always recognise, there is a feeling that there is an over-centralisation of power in, in London, which is unlike America, which is New York as a financial centre, Washington as a political centre, London is both a financial centre and a political centre, and I believe after September the 18th there could be a coalition of interests between the different regions and the other nations of the United Kingdom in trying to get a greater balance uh, to the British economy and to the British constitution. So I would see Scotland uh, linking up with the North East, the North West and with Wales uh, to force uh, further, change, further change in Britain. So I, I think there is a mood that uh, too much power rests in, 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 in London and I think that can change. But the mood is... If, if you're right, then the mood has to have changed because, if you remember, there was a referendum in the northeast looking at, at you know at greater devolution, and it was emphatically rejected. Yeah, I was talking to someone today about this. I mean, in the northeast, it was presented as another layer of bureaucracy, which, in a sense, was what happened in 1979 in Scotland. Uh, when I was campaigning for a yes vote in that referendum for a Scottish Assembly, but people were saying, well, you've got the local government, you've got the, then you've got the, 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 the uh, Scottish uh, government, and then you've got the Westminster government. It's too many tiers of government. Mm -hmm. I think in the North East, uh, there is a greater support now for change uh, than perhaps you imagine. Well, let's move out a bit further beyond the United Kingdom and think about other examples in the relatively recent past where small countries have broken away from larger countries. I'm thinking about Denmark and Norway and so on. And you talked about Olaf Palme and the values that the Scandinavians have. These are success stories. Why couldn't Scotland achieve the same? Yeah, well, you know, someone said to me, you know, why couldn't, you be, why couldn't we be like Norway? And then I say, but, you know, look what happened in Ireland. Look what happened in Iceland. Look what happened in the financial crash when countries had huge financial institutions like Scotland and just could not deal with it. And in many ways, that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue, how do you deal with this concentration of power in a global economy and global society with the fact that 80% of the world's trade is a, is a few multinational companies? You've got to have institutions and organizations and governments that have the power to do something about this. And I can't see the virtue in throwing away the coordination that we've got from working as part of, of the United Kingdom. Now, take Norway, because people use that as a peril. Norway broke away from Sweden 100, 100 years ago. Actually, the referendum was, uh, was a bit more decisive than this one would be. I think 99.5% pe <laughs> of people voted. I think it was about 20 people voted against. So it was a decisive vote, but it was at the turn of the, 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 the century. But, you know, Norway, its relationship with Sweden, only 6% of Norway's exports go to Sweden. So it is not linked in any major way and its fate is not bound in with the future of Sweden. Take Scotland. Now, whether it's financial services or it's whiskey or whether it's ships or whatever, not 6%, 70% of our exports go to England. That's why a million jobs are linked to our fate in the United Kingdom. There is no parallel in the relationship between Norway and Sweden and the relationship between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. We are so much more integrated, as I've just tried to explain, 
and we're integrated at a level that I think is in the to the benefit of the Scottish people. Because just think of it, pensions at a UK level. You've paid in all your life into UK pensions. You've paid national insurance, you've paid taxation. The problems that we will have in trying to separate that off are absolutely major. Did you work for a British or English company or a Scottish company? If you go abroad, who pays for your pension if you go to Spain or, or, or somewhere else? How will occupational pensions be organised? What is the point, in my, in my estimation, having built up a system where pensions are funded and pooled right across the United Kingdom, so the risk is shared right across the United Kingdom, what is the point in a major change in that when at the moment, although it could be better, and of course we try to take more pensioners out of poverty, at the moment at least it is a basic framework which protect, protects people and gives them rights in retirement irrespective of nationality. Okay, let me ask you one last question before I open it to the audience. So if you've got, think about questions now so we don't have the embarrassing silence. Okay, uh, there probably will be good. <laughs> I've not found so, that some of them might have read this, you know, you know, some question. of them might have read that book. But anyway, let me, let me ask you one last question. And it's it's sometimes a silence after I answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you about what you think will happen after September the 18th. Now, the polls are suggesting pretty strongly that it's going to be a no, uh, is going to be the, 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 the verdict. What do you think will happen in Scotland? Will we live in a divided nation, do you think? Well, I hope that everybody will accept the result. I mean, if the vote goes yes, I will accept the result. If the vote goes no, I hope the Scottish National Party will accept that they can't just come back and back and back again uh, and make that the only issue that's got to be dealt with uh, in, in, in Scotland. I hope there will be the reconciliation that the churches, the different churches, all the denominations uh, want, want to see and that any bitterness that has existed in the campaign uh, will go. But I also hope we'll start to deal with some of the, the, the really big questions. I mean, the, the question of um, jobs in this global economy and what are the prospects of young people? What's happening to our colleges? What's actually happening? I mean, I know in Fife what's happening to the health service. These are all big issues that have got to be addressed as well. I also hope we will come together in the UK very, very quickly to make the reforms that I'm suggesting. I see the future as a shared sovereignty. I've been very clear about this. I don't see the status quo as serving Scotland's interests. Having thought about it and having tried to make changes with the Carman Commission and the legislation in 2012, I think it's time to make these uh, further changes that will allow us uh, to have the equality between the nations that can allow us to talk about a shared sovereignty. Okay, great. Could you bring the house lights up? And, and if you've got a question for the, Gordon, wait for the, the So there are still mics. people here. Thank you very much for staying. <laughs> uh, there's a gentleman there if you've got a, a, a mic. Hi there. Uh, <clears throat> just a, a quick one, I suppose, about the... You, you say that you, you believe it's a, a, a union of equals. It's very difficult to have a, an equal partnership when one part of that partnership is so much bigger than the others. Um, listening to the comments of people like Boris Johnson and, and John Redwood recently, is there a, not a danger that Scotland faces some sort of punishment for its upstartness, if you like, once yeah. the, the election is finished? Well, although he's uh, an author also, I'm not here to defend Boris Johnson. <laughs> uh, and I don't think I, uh, I'm going to defend any of the others that you, you, you've mentioned. But what I, what I can say is this. When I talk about equality, I mean the equal right of a citizen. You know, I, I mentioned what had happened in America with civil rights. It is true in Northern Ireland there was discrimination, and that has had to be dealt with, and I was very much involved in that over the last uh, few years. But generally speaking... The right of a citizen of Scotland to have the same pension or to have the same right to help when unemployed or the same right to health care is absolute. And also, if I may say so, the sharing that happens across uh, the boundaries of Scotland and England in, for example, health care, it's sometimes forgotten. I mean, there are about 100 uh, transplants every year where a Scottish uh, donor can help an English patient and an English patient helps a Scottish patient. There are thousands of cases of uh, blood transfusions where it, blood is crossing the borders. Equally, at the same time, there's about 40,000 Scots people who are treated in English hospitals and vice versa. And I don't want to lose that. But basically, by equality, I mean that if you're a citizen, whatever your nationality, Scotland, Scottish, Welsh, English or Northern Ireland, you have exactly the same civil, political and economic and social rights. And that's why we are unique in the modern world. Why does Australia and New Zealand not manage to do this? Why do even the states of America not manage to pull it off? 
why can't Germany agree that it will uh, concede the same rights to Greeks within the European Union? They have not managed to do this, but we have. And I suggest it's something that we should consider very carefully before we throw it away. Okay. Next question. Uh, the gentleman there in the aisle, do you want to? Quick as you can. Chat in the... Uh, <laughs> it, it's a sprint. Thank you. She, she must have been performing in the Commonwealth Games, she's a sprint. Mr. Brown, whether we agree with your politics or not, you're seen as a person with very high moral standards in Scotland. The question I have is, how do you think the politicians are behaving in terms of their ethics, honesty or dishonesty in this campaign, especially our First Minister? Well, <laughs> I, I, I've, got, I've got to say no, nothing, nothing. Look, look I, I lived through the MPs' expenses crisis, and I was absolutely shocked at the behaviour of my, some of my colleagues, a very small minority, some of my colleagues. And I think politicians have had a lot to learn because there was a time, and this is true of other professions as well, when they felt that they could do anything that they wanted, that they were free from the public uh, spotlight, that they were in some way privileged. That, that is not the case. So there's nothing in this uh, campaign that contrasts or compares with the, the horror that I experienced uh, having to deal with and then try to reform a situation, uh, a system in Britain where there had been uh, too much corruption. And so I, I, I think we, we're, we've all had to learn a terrible lesson from that. Now, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not here to crit criticize uh, Alex Salmond. I, I, know, I know he's a very modest man. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I, know, I know he hasn't a big opinion of himself. Someone, someone said to me, they were asked, uh, when he was asked who the three greatest Scots in history were, he said, the other two are Robert the Bruce and William Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? The gentleman down here with the, the check shirt. I'd just like to ask you why we should stay in the United Kingdom, which has a Labour Party, which I've voted for all my life, which is totally ineffectual and up in, the up in the opposition, and has a leader which I have no faith in, and who is... Um, unable to destroy a wounded Liberal Party which is supporting the destruction of the health service and all the social services right across the country. Well, th th this, if I, I, I don't want to get into party politics tonight, but I mean, this, is, this is a question perhaps for the general election. What you want to do we're face with Liberal, Conservatives and Labour. What we're making a decision about is not just for an election and not just for ourselves as individuals. This is a decision for, for a whole uh, generation. Uh, and for generations to come. So when you make your decision, whatever you think of me or think of another politician or think of a particular policy, and people could mention the bedroom tax, which I find odious, or, or mention what happened in uh, the, 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 the economies and social security benefits and say they're wrong. But the truth is we're making a decision for the long term. And I am thinking, and I wrote this book, by the way, because I thought my children need to know what we've been thinking. What have we been looking at? What are going through our head. What, is, what are we trying to decide? So I would suggest to you it's not like an ordinary election. This is a decision about the whole future of our country for generations to come. And in one sense, if it's made one way, it is, of course, uh, irreversible. You know, people say, you know, you, you vote for Labour in Scotland and you don't get the government you want. And I think you've got to deal with that question as well. Because that is simply saying the only dimension that you understand is a Scottish one, that you only want to vote, vote at a Scottish level. You know, we vote in the European elections, and we, to be honest, we don't know what, what government we get. I mean, Jean-Claude Juncker, I think it is. But you don't know, but people accept that you've voted in the European elections, you've made a decision. We vote in the British elections as well, and I think we, we decide that we recognise that these are important elections, we vote in them, and I'm afraid I didn't like it. I mean, I, it didn't work for me, did it? <laughs> uh, but I had, to accept, I had to accept the result because we were voting on British policies that affected every part of Britain and we decided that that was the way we were going to do so. Luckily, we have a Scottish Parliament and we can vote for a Scottish Parliament. But there seems to be no contradiction to me between voting for a Scottish Parliament to do the important things that I'm talking about and also for the common decisions that I think are important to us as well. Pensions, funding of health care, defence, security and jobs. Uh, voting at a British level also. So uh, I, I think the question is more for a general election, but I do suggest to you uh, that there is an important British dimension to many of the things that we, we discuss and many of the things we want to vote on. There's a gentleman there. Uh, 
Mr. Brown, I, I, I speak as a proud Scot who also cried when we lost 9-3. Um, you make... And what about Argentina? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mention that. No, no uh, we won't go there. Um, it, you make extremely powerful arguments in, in favour of, of uh, staying in the Union, and, it, and it's excellent to hear these arguments. For the sake of the Union, though, do you not think these arguments should be made also on a combined platform with Alistair Darling and Better Together, rather than just as a single voice? Yeah, I, I've been speaking on uh, platforms with Better Together. Uh, I, I, you, may, you may not know that, but, uh, but I have been doing that. And I actually was at St Andrews a few weeks ago, and I was speaking with, uh, with Shirley, Shirley Williams on a Better Together platform. I'm doing a, a pensioners rally next, uh, next week for Better Together. I'm doing a, a big meeting in the next uh, few days also with Better Together. So, so I, I, I'm uh, happy to speak on Better Together platforms, but happy also to, to, to get the Labour vote uh, uh, to aware of the arguments that the Labour Party is also putting forward in favour of a no vote. So there's no sectarianism on my part at all. I'm very happy to speak with, uh, with anybody. I wouldn't be so happy to speak with UKIP, but uh, I'm happy to speak with other parties. There's a young man down here. Uh, Mr Brown, um, something you touched on earlier is uh, the various acts of devolution. But despite that, we uh, still have a situation where parliamentary democracy in, West, in Westminster is maintained. Short of having any sort of written constitution, how can you promise to maintain anything uh, in the UK? Because I think it's changed. There is no way that a government in Britain can simply um, ignore uh, the parliamentary acts that have created a Scottish Parliament. There is no way that a decision that has been made by a referendum to create the Parliament or made by a referendum about the future of Scotland uh, can be ignored by, by the Westminster Parliament. These days, I'm afraid, are, are, are over when Parliament could override on vital decisions which are put to a referenda the decisions of, of, of the people. I, I'm trying to suggest that, for, for you know, we, we tend to think of the British Constitution as unchanging as well as unwritten. You know, it's always been there, therefore it's not going to change. In fact, it has changed fundamentally in the time that I've been in, 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 in politics. And it's changing again, uh, thanks in many ways to our pressure from, from Scotland. Uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a, a shared sovereignty between the Scottish Parliament and the Westminster Parliament now. If there was a tension between them uh, or a conflict, that may now be uh, resolved by the courts, uh, as if in a federal constitution. There are various mechanisms now for the Scottish Parliament and the Westminster Parliament to agree things that would then go through as joint decisions. So the British Constitution has changed quite fundamentally. I'm suggesting it should change a bit further, and I think we should recognise that there's a clear division of powers between uh, Scotland uh, uh, and Westminster uh, that gives Scotland autonomy in the areas that I've been talking about. But I come back to this issue. Uh, you know, what sense does it make uh, to end the connection uh, for pensions, healthcare, jobs, defence and security? And these are the important issues where the SNP want to break the connections and where I think people, as on the currency, as we've just mentioned, uh, people have second thoughts about this and, and many people don't agree. So the British Constitution is changing. It will change further and has to change uh, further. Uh, but at the same time, I think you've got to recognise how much change has actually and is taking place. There's a gentleman at the back and then a lady at the front. Good afternoon. Uh, when you look Hello. at the blogs, a number of people just do not think that further devolution will come. They, they just don't believe what the politicians are saying. How soon do you think we could see uh, uh, discussions begin about devolution? And what do you see the discussions taking place in uh, Cardiff and Belfast? How quickly uh, could those be proceeding as well? Be before the next general election, for example? Yeah, I went to a meeting when I was a student at Edinburgh University, and I heard a, a politician speaking on the platform, and I never forgot what he said. He said, and this is a promise we will keep. <laughs> and uh, and I, I can understand how people are sceptical when, uh, when promises are made. I just say to you, there is no choice, there is no alternative but to going ahead with further devolution. It's not just that all parties have committed themselves uh, to it, it's that the people of Scotland know that these promises have directly been made, not just by one party, but by all the parties that they want to see uh, for further change. And I, I suggest to you that these parties will not command popular support at the next general election in Scotland if they renege on the promises after the referendum. Equally, 
I would suggest, and this is what I have proposed uh, privately, but I would suggest that the talks to agree the next stage of the devolution should, should start immediately after September the 18th so that we recognise there is a will for change, that people are not voting for the status quo if they vote no, and people want to see that change as, as quickly as possible. And I, I believe we should think of it as the sharing of sovereignty across the United Kingdom. So the 19th of September, we start talking about... We're not getting a wee bit of a break, John. I, I, I don't, I don't know when the vote... A couple of weeks off, go. <laughs> <laughs> you never, never sleep. <laughs> OK, there's a, a lady at the front here. Um, you mentioned a couple of times about our, um, the Scottish export to England, 70%. Yes. And your implication is that if there was a yes vote, that would cease. Surely not. Surely the, the, the sales would, would not immediately um, cease. And if you go back to uh, New Zealand selling most of their land to Britain, when we joined the EU and they had to stop doing that, they still found another market. Yeah. The argument so, I'm putting is why, why should we break the link when it is so strong and we are so integrated? And, and look, there are about 340,000 jobs Scots are employed by British firms who operate in Scotland. There are about 250,000 or so jobs where these Scottish firms that employ people export to England. And then there's probably about 300,000 other jobs, including civil service jobs, that are, that are linked uh, to being part of the union or dependent on these uh, supplying to these, uh, these, other, these other companies. So if you take shipbuilding, it's clear that there's a problem. I mean, let's be honest about it. I mean, most of the contracts coming to Rosyth and to the Clyde are coming from British uh, naval uh, warships, submarines, aircraft carriers. So there's undoubtedly a problem. When you look at financial services, what people sometimes forget, and I mean, this is just a, a fact, it's not a criticism, 90% of the business of our Scottish financial services companies, whether it's Standard Life or whether it's, uh, it's the banks, or whether it's some of the insurance companies, are selling policies to English customers. And so we think that our banks and financial institutions are dependent purely on Scottish customs sometimes. Actually, the main customers, the main customers for Scottish financial services are in England. And it's not primarily an industry that is exporting big services to other countries. It is primarily an industry that is serving English insurance policies, English pension policies, English financial, financial sector tra transactions. So we've got to recognise that there will be a case put, if Scotland was independent, about why should these financial institutions be regulated in Scotland uh, when they're serving the customer in England. And therefore, there is an issue about jobs in the future, and it's, it, it's almost uh, automatic that people will be looking at where they're going to base themselves in, in, in future. And one of the considerations will be that the integrated market that existed in the past is not as integrated uh, in the future, because that is an impossibility if you have two separate states. Okay, the gentleman over here. If in about three years' time, the United Kingdom were to vote to leave the European Union, would that affect your thinking about Scottish independence at all? Yeah, I think uh, Britain will vote to stay in the European Union, uh, and therefore uh, I would not calculate uh, on the basis that, uh, that Britain is going to, to leave you. You know, there's a huge amount, a huge amount of, uh, of heat, heat, heat about this. I, I was in a studio, a radio studio, a few months ago, and I heard this uh, UKIP uh, MP, and he was being asked by this BBC interviewer, he said, why do you hate Europe so much? Why do you hate it so much? He said, is it ignorance or is it apathy? And the UKIP guy replied, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and, 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 and yes, there is a lot of heat about the European Union. But, you know, when 1975 happened and people thought that after all the criticism of the European Union, there might be a no vote then, it was a resounding about two-thirds yes. And I think after the debate happens in the whole of Britain, I think people will vote to stay as part of the European Union. You see, I, I think people are more intelligent than sometimes the political parties give them credit for. People know we're a more interdependent world. They, they know we're more connected, more integrated. And whether it's migration or whether it's uh, the internet or whether it's simply companies trading in different countries, people know that we're part of bigger units. And that's the only way that the world is going to be organized in future. We're not going to retreat into autonomous units that don't connect with each other in future we're going to be part of uh, these bigger unions. And yes, the European Union needs uh, reformed, and don't I know it, 
you know, John Cod Juncker will probably become the most hated man in Britain over the next two or three years, won't he? Because he is looking as if he's defending an unreformed European uh, Union. But I think when the argument is put, uh, when uh, people explain the effects on jobs, when they explain the effects on the whole economy, and then about the links that we've built up, and, and you know, something that I think our generation sometimes forget, that, you know, 60 years ago, Europe was at war, and now Europe is a peaceful continent. And one of the reasons it's peaceful is that people are cooperating with each other. And I think that will still be a very important argument when we vote, if there is a vote, because that is dependent on what happens at the election in 2017. So I would expect us to stay as part of the European Union for similar reasons to the ones I give for the interdependent world that Scotland is part of as well. Okay, gentlemen up there. Thank you. Um, I'm very interested in your arguments for Scottish sovereignty, which weren't very apparent when you were in power. And I wonder in particular whether you think it should extend to the right to have um, weapons of mass destruction in this country, which most, the vast majority of Scots are opposed to and many people consider illegal. Well, I hope, I hope, I mean, look, look you know, you obviously don't agree with uh, some, maybe all of the things I did in government, but I hope you will agree that uh, we set up the Common Commission, it produced these uh, recommendations that are about a shared sovereignty between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom, uh, and these recommendations are in the 2012 Act. We set up the Commission, it made the report, these recommendations were part of what I asked uh, Mr. Mr. Carman, uh, Sir Kenneth Carman, who's a very prominent uh, Scot, uh, uh, to look at. Now, as for uh, weapons of mass destruction, look, I want to get rid of Trident too, but I want to do it as part of a multilateral process of disarmament where other countries get rid of their weapons too. I can't see the benefit in us having a weapon, giving it up unilaterally, when no other country is going to follow uh, and take a similar course. And I particularly don't see it as, as, as the right way forward when uh, we are threatened by having more nuclear powers in the future. If we could use our weapons to get rid of other weapons, that would be by far be the best way. So don't, don't go away with the impression that I want to keep weapons of mass destruction. I want to get rid of them too, but I want to do it as part of a, a multilateral process where everybody is giving up weapons that could uh, endanger all our lives. Okay. There's a gentleman at the back there. Hello. Uh, Mr. Brown, sorry, I've got the microphone here. Um, I work where's, where's in the. Uh, oh yeah, thank you. Thank I you. work in the international development sector in Scotland, and I know that you have a, a shared passion for international development, and I commend you for all your, the things you've done for the sector. Um, but the theme of the, your question, the theme of your talk today, is about interdependence. If ever there's a sector that is aware of the interdependence of the world, then it is those who give their lives and uh, their, their working lives to, to supporting the poorest people in the world around this world. Um, there was a poll done recently of uh, third sector workers which found that 83% of those third sector workers plan to vote yes. And even just anec anecdotally, amongst uh, those people who work for international development organisations in Scotland, I, do I barely know anybody who plans to, no to vote no. Um, myself, I plan to uh, vote do you yes. Have a, do you have a question? Right Pardon? Do you have a yeah, question? the question is, I mean, do you think we're all wrong? Do you think we're narrow nationalists? Do you think that there's, um, you know, why do you think it, there's so much support for, for the yes vote amongst those people who are arguably amongst Scotland's most internationalist, outward-looking people? Well, as, as you know, I, I am involved in, uh, as a UN special envoy, and I, I, I must just say that's not my experience, both in Scotland and elsewhere, of meeting people who are calling for, for independence. You see, if you look at international aid, how, how do we achieve the greatest effect? I mean, yes, yes, we could have a separate, and we do have a separate Scottish aid budget, but it is relatively small. The difference that is needed to be made in Africa and elsewhere requires large age budgets. It requires countries to cooperate together, not to split away from each other. It requires the concentration of resources on a particular problem. It requires the mobilization of lots of additional resources, and I can't see how we benefit from splitting up the International Development Department into two or three different uh, units. I can't see how we have more influence on international development as part of a separate Scottish government than as part of a bigger uh, UK government. Uh, and I do think that we have, in Britain, made a huge difference over, over recent years. Uh, we secured debt relief. You could never have secured that as an independent Scottish government. Let's, let's be honest. It happened at the G8, which is the eight biggest countries in the world meeting together. They had to decide to give up the debt. We are part of it because we're part of the UK. We would not be part of it. We're part of Scotland. We could campaign all our lives, sign petitions, send messages, 
but we could not have been round that table where Britain led the way in getting rid of the debts of the poorest countries of the world. And as a result of that, the education and health budgets in some of the poorest countries in Africa doubled as a result of that, and millions of children were able to go to school and able to get health, uh, health, health care. So I've got to disagree with you. I think that what we did on debt relief was only possible because we were a big country able to exercise some influence on the world stage. And I think in the long run, it's cooperation between the aid agencies uh, that really is going to make the difference. And I just can't see the, the, the benefit we get from splitting up the aid agencies in the United Kingdom. Okay. <clears throat> okay, we've got time for, for two more quick questions and quick answers. Uh, thank you. I've been very concerned walking about Edinburgh to see vast numbers of people exhibiting yes posters and virtually nobody exhibiting posters in favour of the union. And I'm very much afraid that when there is a no vote, that the large majority of Scotsmen who want to be independent will look at that and say, we've been cheated. It's not that people wanted the union, it's that they were bamboozled into it by a lot of cheating by British politicians. And there'll be huge resentment against the English. Okay. Those of us who live in the north of England and feel closer to Scotland than to, England, than to London in every possible way don't want to see that, and I'd like to know what can be done about it. Yeah, well, I don't think the number of posters uh, shows what the final result is going to be. I, you know, if I'd taken you to some parts of uh, Britain during the general election in 2010, I might have thought I was going to win that election. <laughs> so you cannot, you cannot, you cannot draw these, these, uh, these, these, these conclusions. And as for relationships between Scotland and, and England, you know, there, there is always a, 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 a tension. You know, Lula, who was the president of Brazil, told me this uh, great story, if you'll allow me to tell it. He said when he was a, a young trade unionist before he became president, and he was asked when things went wrong, who do you blame? He said, I blame the government. And then when he became a trade union leader, the general secretary of the National Union, he was asked what he was I blame the government. And then he became the leader of the opposition. And he was asked, who do you blame when things go wrong? He said, I blame the government. And then he became the government. And he was asked, who do you now blame for the problems? I blame America. <laughs> and we will always uh, be people who look for uh, someone to blame when things go wrong. But in the end, you've got to look at the balance of this, 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 this relationship and what our vision is of the future. And I see Scotland as leading the way, leading the way, as we did in the Industrial Revolution years when we created the welfare state, in creating the idea of a more interdependent world where we share sovereignty and certainly we have more autonomy in the decisions we make, but equally where it's right to do so, we share. And I cannot see the wisdom of breaking every single constitutional link with the rest of the United Kingdom. It just not, does not make sense to me when I look at pensions, healthcare, jobs, and defense. Okay, last question. Thank you. Um, I'm um, originally from Manchester. I've got a um, personal union with my uh, Scottish <laughs> wife, so I'm very interested in the Better Together campaign. Well, I, I, hope we, I hope we can keep it together. Uh, we, we're, we're <laughs> Anything we can do. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're working on it. Um, uh, the Better Together campaign talks about uh, getting the best of both worlds. Now, from my original city, the north of England, uh, uh, you know, we see the Scots getting the best of both worlds, actually. Um, how do you see regionalism in England really working and can the Scots contribute towards um, uh, pushing that forward because you know the London effect okay. hurts Manchester just as much as it hurts Glasgow and Edinburgh. Thank yeah you. I, I, rem I remember someone uh, comparing uh, the union to a marriage and saying it was like uh, 50 years of a partnership he'd considered uh, murder often and divorce never and maybe, <laughs> and maybe that's the maybe that's the future we've got to recognize that, uh, that we, we need to work together and have common interests with the people of Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, and these cities. And what I said at the beginning, I think, is absolutely right. Look, all of these different parts of uh, England uh, feel that there, there is an imbalance in the, in, in, in the British state because you've got overcrowding, congestion, high property prices, uh, overheating in, in the southeast. And you've got depopulation in some areas, forced emigration in some areas, where people think they've got to emigrate to get a job. And you've got the underuse of resources in many parts of the rest of the United Kingdom. And that is what I've always wanted a regional policy to be able to do, to uh, balance the, the interests of the whole of the United Kingdom and help those regions 
uh, that need jobs and need uh, better services uh, to come up in the world. So that will require changes from, uh, from London uh, as well and changes in London itself. So I think my message to people in the, in the regions of England is that Scotland, Wales and the regions should unite with each other and put the case for a more balanced United Kingdom. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Gordon will be happy to sign copies of his book in the signing tent next door. But meanwhile, please join me in thanking Gordon very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.